Let's go ahead and pray and get started, and we'll uh, dig right into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for the people that you brought out. I know there's a lot of activities and situations going on today. Just keep everybody safe as they travel. But for right here, right now, we want to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you and your name. Amen. I want to start out by saying a big thanks to everybody that helped uh, on Wednesday to have the Seder meal go well with Ephraim Goldstein there. It was a real blessing. Thanks to everybody that helped out, everybody that came, participated. Hope you were blessed by that as well. So once again, thank you for that. Hey, we're going to be in Acts 18 this morning, continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Acts. And Paul now is going to be in Corinth. He left Athens last week. He's on his second missionary journey. And so Athens here kind of ended a little interesting. We had the discussion on Mars Hill at the end of chapter 17. And he then leaves after this. He now goes to Corinth. Now, Corinth becomes very fruitful. That's what the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are written to, is to the church at Corinth. Paul actually stays here a fairly long time, over a year and a half. And if I remember correctly, off the top of my head, I believe this is the second longest place he stayed. I think the only longer place was Ephesus. So he built a real relationship here with these people. And there was a lot of fruit here. But what we're going to get into here this morning, we're going to be introduced to my favorite married couple in the Bible by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. So verse 1 of Acts 18, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So now we're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila, and I absolutely love talking about Priscilla and Aquila. I just think they're a really neat example of marriage. Now, here's the problem. Anytime marriage comes up in the Bible, we stop, we talk a little bit about what marriage is, and sometimes it just doesn't go as well as I hope it's going to go. And it kind of goes that way for a couple reasons. First off, if you're here this morning and maybe you're single, you automatically tune out because you say, well, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. Maybe you're here this morning and your marriage isn't going well, and so you don't want to hear about it, so you automatically tune out. Maybe you're here this morning and you think you got it all figured out in marriage, so you automatically tune out. This is what I've noticed over the years. How have people come up to me over the years and say, boy, we got a lot of hurting marriages at the church. We should do some type of marriage study, marriage enrichment. I say, I'm all for it. The people that are going to show up are the ones that already have a good marriage. And that's what kind of happens here. And so I want to let you know, as we talk about Priscilla and Aquila, there's four points I want to talk about them. Three of them apply to you whether you're single or not, whether you're married or not. One point applies specifically to married couples, but the other ones apply to no matter where you're at. Now, I think it's important at this time to stop every now and then and just explain marriage, the beauty of it. I'm a huge fan of marriage. It says in Hebrews 13 that marriage should be honored by all, and I think marriage should be honored. Marriage is the only thing that we have that still comes out of the Garden of Eden, If you go back to God's original creation, marriage is what is there. What a beautiful picture that that is. And so you see this beautiful picture of marriage, of man and woman coming together in the Lord. And it's supposed to be this wonderful picture of our relationship with Christ. When a marriage is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife is respecting honor and submitting as the Bible says, it's a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus has for the church and the willingness that Jesus has to follow God the Father. It it works perfectly. But marriage is really difficult. It's really, really hard. And if you're here this morning and you're single, I just want to encourage you. Do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Do not seek the spouse. Now, that's hard because I run into a lot of single Christians, and their only focus is finding the right person. And that becomes their energy and their effort in all things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you are single, do not seek a spouse. That word for seek in the original language means that is your soul-driving force. 
And I've run into single Christians that are desperate for that. And I always try to remind them, remember, God created the Eve for Adam, the Adam for Eve. There is an Eve out there for your Adams, and there's an Adam out there for your Eves. You've got to be patient. You've got to wait. Don't push it. Don't rush that. So therefore, we want to be as a single person still serving the Lord in all ways and all things. Because the truth is, I run into a lot of Christians that are single, and to be honest, they're miserable. And they think they're going to be happy in marriage. And if you're going to go into marriage thinking your spouse is going to bring you joy, peace, and happiness, then you don't understand marriage. I love Dawn with all my heart more than anybody else in this world. But it's not Dawn's responsibility to bring me peace, joy, and happiness. Jesus Christ does that for me. I just get to serve along that. So if you're going into marriage thinking your spouse is going to fulfill you, then you're misunderstanding biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is two people coming together in the Lord to say, we can serve God more efficiently and more effectively for the glory of the kingdom together than we could apart. And God bring us together. And what a beautiful picture that that is. If you're an unhappy, miserable, single Christian, you will probably be an unhappy, miserable, married person. Because you're not allowing the joy of the Lord to be your strength. So I just wanted to remind you of that as we talk about this beautiful picture of marriage. Be patient. Adams, wait for your Eve. Eve, wait for your Adam. And God will bless that. Now, as we're talking about Priscilla and Aquila, they're mentioned five times in the Bible. And the reason I love them so much is every time they're mentioned in the Bible, they're mentioned together. It's a team effort here. So now Aquila's name means eagle. I love that name for him. Just this very powerful, radiant name, Eagle. Priscilla's name means ancient. Only thing I can figure is he married an older woman. That's the only thing I can figure there. So, but it's this neat couple of Priscilla and Aquila. So, four points here about them as they minister and serve. The first one does apply to married couples, but the rest all applies to singles as well. First thing you see with them is when they're mentioned, they're always mentioned together. Always. Anytime they're mentioned in the Bible, there is a oneness with them being together. Can you go with me, please, to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2. The, the importance of the husband and wife being together, the oneness of that. Most of the time when I'm looking at marriages and I see them start to fall apart, I really see two things that are happening. The first thing I see generally is there's not the spiritual leadership that should be there from the men. You know, men, we're called to be leaders. It's a tough gig. It's a tough calling. It is hard. It is difficult. But that's our calling, to love our wives as Christ loved the church. It says in the book of Colossians is to love them and not to become bitter towards them because it's easy for men to do that. But the second thing I see is as marriages start to struggle and fall apart, they start to, the classic, drift apart. They forget the oneness there. And I see sometimes these marriages where the couples just start living on their own, if you will. I call them roommates that don't get along. And so they are married, but they're really not. And you start hearing these little comments like, hey, I need to get away from him. I need to get away from her. We just need some space. And it's like, oh, my, we're starting to lose the oneness, if not already lost it. Look at the oneness here that God has designed from the beginning back in Genesis 2. Let's go ahead and start in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it's not good for man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. If you are called into marriage, God has called you into a helpmate with your spouse. Take a look at verse 18. It's not good for man to be alone. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 says not everyone is called into marriage. And that's fine. Not everybody is called into that. But if we are called into marriage, we need to understand that there's supposed to be this oneness and this team effort. I see so many men, especially the men, I should say, that get married and they want to pretend they're single. You can't do that. You're married. There's a oneness. And men have these fantasies, I think, of just, I don't know, going up to Alaska and living in a cave and hunting wild game and providing for themselves and letting their beards grow out and all this other type of stuff. And it's like, sorry, buddy, you're married. That ain't happening. 
We have to remember that men need a helper, verse 18, and men spend most of their life trying to convince themselves they don't. God says you do. So if you're called into marriage, you need a helper. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there's not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. I can't remember my seventh grade health class real well. I just know that there's more than 200 bones in the human body. So of those 200 plus bones, why did he choose the rib? Well, if he would have chosen the foot bone, it would show man's over the woman. If he would have chosen the head bone, it would show that women's over the man. Rib, there's an equality between men and women. The rib bone is a bone of protection. The rib bone protects vital organs. There is that element of marriage there, of protection of one of the men's roles. So you see the oneness from the beginning there. Verse 23, she is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And verse 24 makes it clear. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's what we're building up to. One flesh, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. There is that idea of oneness in marriage always together. And you see that with Priscilla and Aquila. There is a oneness when they are mentioned, always serving the Lord together. And what a wonderful blessing that is. Now, the next three points about them apply to you, whether you're single, married, or not. The next point we see about Priscilla and Aquila, they're always ministering. Anytime they're mentioned, they're doing something for God. They always are. Take a look here at verse 3. They're letting Paul stay with them in verse 3. We have them see them having a church in their house in Romans 16, a church in their house in 1 Corinthians 16. And then what else do we see? They're discipling people. Jump down to verse 24 of Acts 18, same chapter. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You see them discipling somebody, ministering, serving together. Now, once again, whether you're married or single, your goal is to go make disciples. That's Matthew 28. We've said out here many times before. We would love it if you were always discipling somebody and always being discipled by somebody. Disciple just means a follower of a teacher. We're following the teachings of Jesus Christ, and we want to encourage each other to do that. I see so many stale Christians because they just kind of come to church, sit down, do their thing, go home. There's so much more to the depth of a walk in relationship with Christ. But what you see here with Priscilla and Aquila, they're always interesting. They have somebody living with them. Verse 3, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. This is something that Dawn and I try to look at. We look at Priscilla and Aquila, and we've always said we want them to try to be an example for us on how a marriage is supposed to be. And ever since we've been married, we'll be married 22 years here this uh, summer. Ever since we've been married, we've always tried to say, okay, if we have an open room at our house, somebody can stay. Because let's try to do that. Now, is that always easy? No, it's not always easy. It's amazing how sometimes difficult that can be. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But we say we want to open the house. Okay, we also always want to be discipling people. 
discipling. We want to have people over. We want to do the homesteads. We want to do the discipleship. And how neat I hope it is to see a husband and wife come together and disciple. Over the years, we've had a lot of guys come through our house. And they come, and we get a chance to spend a lot of time with them. And I hope we invest in them in the Lord. And then they always ultimately find a woman, get married, and leave us high and dry. But that's okay. For the years that we have them, we're there, and we disciple, and we love them. And we've always looked at Priscilla and Aquila saying, our house is going to be open. And we're going to be willing to disciple people, hopefully teach them, hopefully love them together as a couple as much as possible. And it's the power of a couple serving the Lord together. And I think this is a really neat example. Now, with that being said, it takes us to our next point. You've got to be willing to get uncomfortable. Now, let me explain what that means. We do all we can to make our house a home and to be as comfortable as we possibly can. That's what we do. We spend all of our time and energy trying to make our house better. We make the joke out here about the magazine, Better Homes and Gardens. Make your home better because it's not good enough right now. And let us show you pictures of people's homes that are better than your home so that way you can sit there and have biblical jealousy and say, I need to go do this. And that's why we watch these shows on TV of people's houses getting remodeled and, you know, they just... It's this, this constant pressure of more comfortability, more whatever. And really what you see with Priscilla and Aquila, and this applies to singles as well, God is saying it's not about your comfortability. It's about you glorifying the Lord and whatever God's called you to do. I go back to verse 3. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. He stayed with them. I, we have learned over the years when we've had people live with us, it changes how you live. It changes how you communicate with each other. changes how loud you choose to speak. It changes how you discipline your kids in front of strangers. It changes absolutely everything. We had a span of about a month last year for the first time in a couple years where we did not have somebody living with us. And it just absolutely amazed me how in that brief month before, in between foster placements and people living with us, that our voices started getting louder, that it got easier to yell across the house to get someone's attention. It got easier to have a conversation that got a little more tense because we don't have to worry. It's just our kids. Who cares if they see us represent Jesus Christ, right? It's tough. There's an uncomfortable with this. You see them in verse 2 being forced to move because of Claudius the emperor. Now, just a little bit of background there. This is probably about 20 years after Christ died on the cross. And and you're going to see with these different uh, emperors in Rome, some of them put up with the Jews, some of them couldn't stand the Jews. This one didn't like the Jews a lot, so he started pushing all the Jews out. They were forced to move. We're going to see some other uncomfortable situations that Priscilla and Aquila put themselves in because the Lord was leading them to do it. Keep your hand here real quick. Go with me to Romans 16. Romans 16. Let's talk about the uncomfortability. You have to be willing to stop and say, it's not my house, it's not my home. Lord, it's yours. It's not my life, it's not my time. Lord, it's yours. Take a look here at Romans 16. Start in verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. What a great compliment. Wouldn't you love to be met by Paul and said, this is my fellow workers, who risked their own lives for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their home. They have a church in their home, fellow workers. But look at verse 4. Who risked their own necks for my life. Paul's not one given to much exaggeration. So, what did Priscilla and Aquila do that was that amazing that for all of eternity it's written down that they risked their lives for Paul? Was Priscilla some type of secret agent we don't know about? I don't know. They did something. They were willing to put their life on the line. 
And once again, as Christians, we try so hard to make ourselves comfortable where what a blessing it is when you let go of that and just stop and say, Lord, it's yours. What does that look like? And I tell you, I'm just really blessed with my wife that I can come up to her and say, hey, honey, I've really been praying about it. I think we need to go up to Dearborn and go door to door in the Muslim community. And she says, sure, let's take the kids. Hey, hey, man, let's go. Don, I think we should really pray about doing some um, missions work maybe and go away for a little bit and just serve the Lord with that for a while. And she's like, sure, let's just take the kids. I mean, and just she's got this heart to do this. And I see it personally with our house. Somebody wants to move in. She says, sure, here's our bedroom. Take the bedroom. I'll move down the basement. Then I'll move up here. There was one time where we had people moving in and out. And over a span of six months, she was willing to move her bedroom around four times. But just because they needed a place to stay. And she's, you know, she takes the time. She decorates up her room. She puts scriptures up there. She paints. I don't know why it is, ladies. Why do you only paint one wall a different color? But she paints one wall a different color. It makes no sense to me. And there's the one wall that's really pretty. And it's got scripture verses. And she says, hey, someone needs the room. I'll move. And, and I just see that uncomfortability, and it's just a neat example to me of us to stop and say it's not about us. It's about the Lord. If the Lord says go, let's go. And that takes us to our fourth point with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. When God says go, they go. And that's what they do. Hey, we got to move out of Rome. We move out of Rome. Now we're in Corinth. Hey, we got to do this now. we got a church in our house. Hey, someone needs a place to stay. Someone needs discipled. And it's just a really neat example of what a marriage is supposed to be. And I just want to encourage you married couples here, remember this. The oneness they have, always ministering, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to go when God leads them. And if you're here today and you're single, three of those points still apply. Always ministering, willing to be uncomfortable for the Lord, and willing to go where God leads. It's just a beautiful picture of them, and it's a great example that I think we can follow in many ways and many things. So let's go back now to Acts 18. What's going to Paul going to do? He's going to do the same thing he always does. Verse 4, reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. This is Paul's thing. He'd go to the town, find the synagogue, start going there. And as they would read the scripture, he'd start telling them about the Lord. And this is what he did. Please note, he reasoned with them. Third study in a row where we've seen that word. He reasoned with them in Acts 17.2. He reasoned with them in Acts 17.17. 17. That word literally means he dialogued with them. He talked to them. So he shows up, synagogue, they're reading what we would call the Old Testament law. They're reading the scroll of Isaiah, and it's a prophecy about the Messiah. Paul says, let's talk about this. This is who Jesus is. Let's dialogue. I think we've lost that as Christians. We either start yelling and screaming at him, or we say nothing. I I am not making this up. I mean this sincerely. If I run into somebody who says they're an atheist, I say, this is the greatest conversation ever. Tell me why you're an atheist. Let's, die. Let's go get a meal together and you tell me why you've chosen to go the path of not believing in God. Or if you're an agnostic or you're a Hindu or you're a Muslim, come. Let's, let's dialogue. Let's talk about this. Because I want to know what you're thinking because I want to represent the truth of the scriptures to you. And I really want to represent Jesus Christ to you. So let's start dialoguing. Let's start talking about this and see where God goes with it. Now, as he's doing this, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He was compelled. This is a very strong word. He was pressured, some of your translations say. We would say they was, it was heavy on the heart. The Lord led them. Something along this type of line where you, you can't really function. I mean, this person's always on your heart. This situation's always on your heart. And you're thinking about it and praying about it. And you're sitting there saying, I got to do something. So Paul is looking around right here in verse 5 and just moved by the Spirit. And these people need to know that Jesus is the Christ. And the Lord is leading him to do this. 
Have you ever had that just strong, for lack of a better word, feeling that you need to do that? I think that's great. Just make sure it lines up with the Bible. This is what I've noticed, and this is what I do. If I'm having a conversation with somebody, and it starts to go a little askew, and it's like, okay, they're coming up with an idea here that I don't really know is really all that great of an idea. I will ask them, so when you prayed about it, did the Lord lead? So I, I do two things. When you prayed about it, did the Lord lead? Now, they have to answer and either say, no, I haven't prayed about it, and the Lord hasn't led, and my response back is going to be, then why are you doing it? Or they're going to say, yes, I prayed about it, and the Lord led, and then I need to take a step back and say, okay, if you're saying the Lord led you, then I need to step back. Does that mean I just let everything go? No, because please remember the truth. There's three truths in the Bible. Holy Spirit is truth, Jesus is truth, God's word is truth. So if somebody comes up to me and says, I prayed about it and the Lord led, I feel compelled, I feel pressured, I need to do this, then it's going to line up with God's word, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. If it does not, it is not truth, and we need to let it go. So that's what you do. If you're running into a situation and you're talking to someone, ask them, did you pray about it? Is that where the Lord led? If they say yes, then, hey, it has to line up with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's word. If it doesn't, there's a danger there. So how do you know what that wisdom looks like? Go with me to Proverbs 8, please. Proverbs 8. Learning to listen. Paul says he was compelled, pressured, pushed in a good way. We have to learn to listen to the voice of the Lord. John 10, 27 says, my sheep know my voice. As followers of Christ, we know when he's leading us. Proverbs 8 describes this. Now, as you read through the book of Proverbs, and I highly encourage you, if you don't have a daily devotion, I'm a big fan of whatever day of the week it is, you read that proverb. So what is today? Today is the 18th. You would read Proverbs 18. 31 chapters in Proverbs, most months, 30, 31 months, it's, it's fine. If you're thinking, well, in the month of February, I'm going to miss three chapters, God knows, it's okay. But I encourage you to read it. And I'm not going to lie, I encourage you to keep reading it. I, I keep rereading Proverbs because there's so much wisdom in here. But as we get to Proverbs 8, there's a wisdom. And wisdom is personified as a woman here. Now, this is how God is trying to tell you. Wisdom wants to be a part of your life. And so they're using this example of almost being a woman crying out to you, saying, I, I want you to know me. I want you to know wisdom. Now, he takes it one step further in the New Testament because in Corinthians it says that Jesus became wisdom for us. So Christ is wisdom. But here it's kind of personified as a woman crying out. If you need wisdom and guidance, if you want to know if the Lord's leading you, listen to these verses. Proverbs 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the door. So wisdom is crying out to you. Wisdom wants to be in your life to lead you. Verse 4. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, we have an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things. Wisdom will always give you excellent guidance. And from the opening of my lips will come right things, for my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands. Now, verse 9, you may trip up on that one like me and say, okay, they're all plain? God says, yeah. I'm not trying to hide my will from you. I'm not trying to hide my perfect plan for you. But then why is it so difficult to understand that? Let's keep reading. And write to those who find knowledge. 
Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all things one may desire cannot be compared with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Look at verse 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Now, just look at that verse one more time. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. You've got to ask yourself, and let's just be completely honest, do we really love wisdom, and are we diligently seeking it? If you're like me, sometimes my prayer for wisdom is like this. Lord, i got a big situation coming up. I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. Thank you. Amen. And I move on with my day. There's no time for him to respond. I don't diligently seek him. And then I come back and say, well, I prayed about it. Well, I mentioned it to him. When you really study out diligently seeking the Lord, it is this idea of stopping what you're doing and saying, this decision is so big, I'm not going to move today. So you know what? If I miss a couple meals, hey, then I fast over this in the Lord. I got some household projects that need to be done. Well, they can get done some other day. I'm going to seek the Lord. If you got to go to work, then you go to work, and you're just constantly in prayer about it, constantly seeking, being diligent. I think a lot of times we don't know how to listen to the Lord. We have phones going off. We have TVs on. We have radios on. There's constant communication. And the idea of being still and seeking the Lord and taking the time to do it, it, it's almost foreign to us in our society that just keeps moving. And I just want to encourage you, if you really want to know what the Lord's leading in your life, you're going to have to get away. You're going to have to seek him diligently. You're going to have to really seek that out. And he promises, I will answer. So when I read back in Proverbs 18, you can go with me, excuse me, Acts 18. When I read back where it says that Paul was compelled by the Spirit, I bet he was willing to listen. He was willing to really seek the Lord, hear what God has to say, and put that time, energy, and effort into it. Once again, Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep know my voice. Because we're used to that, we hear that, and we can listen. So Paul is led by the Spirit. But what's going to happen when you try to do what the Lord wants? Verse 6, when they opposed him, blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul said, I've tried. I have tempted. I've planted seeds. The Lord has now said, move on. Christians, don't be afraid to move on when it comes to witnessing and evangelism. I think sometimes we just keep shoving seeds down people's throats. Sometimes you've got to present the truth and just get out of the way. And you may say, I know, but I care and I love. Good. Plant the seed. Now go pray for the seed. Go fast for the seed. Go search the scriptures. And when God opens the door, go back and redo it. But there's a lot of times we just need to present the truth and then get out of the way. So Paul gets out of the way, and what does he do? He departs from there, verse 7, enters the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I tell you, I think Paul is one of the orneriest guys that ever lived. He tells the Jews, fine, I'm done, I'm going to the Gentiles, and he moves into the house next to the synagogue. Just to get at him, I think, a little bit there. So fine, I'm no longer going to preach to you guys, but I'm just going to move next door. And I think I'm just going to proudly preach to these Gentiles that are showing up. Remember, a Gentile, anybody who's not Jewish. And just I'm going to present in the gospel. What happens? Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. The ruler of the synagogue gets saved. Isn't that amazing? The ruler of the synagogue gets saved. Verse 8, many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. There is so much fruit going on in Corinth. He just came from Athens where there was very little fruit at all. 
Now he's in Corinth where rulers of the synagogue are getting saved. Now, you would think that there'd be a stopping and rejoicing, and there is. But think of everything Paul's been through. Every time something good happens, what happens? Oh, a few chapters ago, he got beat to the point of death. Happened just a couple chapters ago. His back was laid open. He was thrown into prison. Have you ever had that where things are going good? The Lord's really moving and working and just, it's just, everything is going right. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, just wait. It's amazing as Christians, we don't believe in karma in any way whatsoever. But yet we start, oh, this is too good. This, this is too good. Something's about to happen. You know, the other shoe's about to fall. It's been too good for too long. And we start living then in this fear of this is going too well. And now we just expect the bad thing. And then what happens? Something bad happens. And we say, I told you it would happen. This is what always happens in my life. Things go really good for a while. And then it gets really difficult. And it's that self-fulfilling prophecy. Here, it's going really well. Paul hasn't been beat up yet. He hasn't been thrown in prison. His back's not laid open. Ruler of the synagogue is saved. Many are getting saved. Many are hearing, believing, getting baptized. We know from 1 and 2 Corinthians there's a strong church here. But then this happens, verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Amen. So what does he do with that? Verse 11. He continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now you already know the answer to this. If God has to show up, verse 9, in a vision and say, don't be afraid, but keep speaking, do not keep silent, why does he have to tell Paul that? Because Paul was becoming afraid, and Paul wanted to keep silent. Now, you may say, well, no, that's not true. Well, then why is God so confused that he has to show up to Paul to tell him, don't be afraid, speak, and do not keep silent? That means Paul was becoming afraid. If you come up to me here after church and you say, hey, James, whatever, I'm talking to you, and you say, i got to run into the restroom real quick. If I grab you by the shoulder and say, don't be afraid, it's going to be okay. <laughs> I'm assuming you're afraid to go into the restroom. You're going to look at me and say, I'm not scared. But So if God is showing up to Paul and saying, don't be afraid, speak and do not keep silent, Paul was becoming afraid. Paul was starting to become silent. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. These men and women of God have a nature just like ours. So therefore, when I read about Elijah and I read about Paul and Peter and I think, oh man, these guys, they're on a whole nother level. I will never be able to fully grasp. No, Paul got scared. Why? Maybe he remembers. Now he's not going to say two chapters ago, but remember he remembers two chapters ago. They beat me up, threw me in prison. Maybe he remembers a few chapters ago where they drugged me out of the city and they stoned me. Maybe he remembers, you know, every time it gets really fruitful, I get a scar on my body. And maybe he got scared. And so Paul needed to be reminded, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. I just want to remind you of this very simple verse, 1 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of strength, power, and a sound mind. If you're doing anything out of fear, it's not of the Lord. I'm afraid to tell them, then that's not of the Lord. I'm afraid to go try serving there, then it's not of the Lord, because you're letting fear decide. God does not use fear. He is not giving you a spirit of fear. He gives you strength, power, and a sound mind. So therefore, when he shows up to Paul and says, do not be afraid, but speak. I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. Don't you think Paul breathed a sigh of relief and said, thank you, Lord? Wouldn't you like it if God would do that to you? 
Every night when you go to bed, he just shows up in a vision. says, hey, here's the plan tomorrow. Problem is you would start then just treating your relationship with the Lord with a vision. Well, why do I need to do devotions? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to go to church? He just appears to me in visions. The Lord will do that. He uses it here every now and then. But this is not the relationship we have with him. The relationship we have with him is through his word. We've got to remember that. And God's word said, don't be afraid. We're not going to be afraid. So Paul stays there. Year and a half teaching the word of God. But now there's a governmental change. Galileo becomes proconsul of Achaia, verse 12. So this means the local government leadership changed. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So it looks like there's a governmental change locally, and the Jews say, we got a guy now that we think will listen to us. This Paul has been a problem for a year and a half. Now we need to do something. Verse 13, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names of your own law, look to it yourselves. I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. I just got to be honest with you. I love it when I'm talking, preaching, ministering, witnessing, and, and the Lord just speaks. And you're listening to yourself. And you're like, I know that's not me. I know there's no way that I could form together that eloquent, coherent sentence and further the gospel. I know it. But what's even more amazing than that is when you have something like verse 14. When Paul is about to open his mouth, you don't even have to say anything. I love it when I show up and I'm all prayed up. I'm all fast up. I remember one time I was getting ready to have this meeting with somebody and it was not going to go good. Not going to go good in any way whatsoever. It was like battle lines drawn in the sand. And I was prayed up. I was fasted up. Now, that's the spiritual side of me. The fleshly side of me, I was worked up. I was worried. I was anxious. I'm ready for this meeting. I go in. And before I can even open my mouth, the person says, I just want you to know I really prayed about it. And this is what the Lord led me to do. And uh, I'm really sorry for how it's like. So I fasted for no reason. I could have I ate. Really what it came down to is I worried for no reason. I was anxious for no reason. I love it when it just the Lord takes care of it. Verse 14, Paul doesn't have to speak. You know why? Because God already told Paul, verse 10, I'm with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. Do you think Paul was getting ready to drop the whole Roman citizenship thing? Hey, don't beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. I've already been through this. No, he doesn't even have to say anything. So now the Jews are angry. They wanted blood. So what do they do? Verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosentheus, the ruler of the synagogue. This is the new ruler of the synagogue because the first one, Crispus, back verse 8, got saved. Then all the Greeks took Sosentheus, the ruler of the synagogue, beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. Mob mentality. They were planning to beat Paul. They can't beat Paul. So you know what? I don't want to infer too much into the scriptures. Verse 17, sounds like Sosentheus was maybe the ramrod of this. Hey, guys, we got a new local leader. Let's take Paul to him. We'll get rid of this guy. And so now the Jews are angry. The Jews are upset. Somebody's got to pay. And so Sosentheus is the one that gets beaten. Seems a little unfair. But I want to remind you of something. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1. We have a tendency to skip over little verses like this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And who? Sothentius, our brother. Looks like he got saved. Now, you can stop and say, I bet it was a different one. And you may be right. But when we get to heaven, you see I'm right. I want you to 
be reminded of that. That it looks like this could have been the same guy. This is the first Corinthians written to the church at Corinth where Paul was just ministering and he names drops Sosentheus because they would know who he was. My opinion, my opinion, I would say it three times, my opinion, looks like it's about the same guy. Now, isn't that fascinating? The rulers of the synagogue just keep getting saved. Crispus is saved. So Cynthius is saved. I don't know what happened. After the Jews got done beating him, did he stop and say, why am I doing this? My own people are going to turn against me? People are going to get upset at me? Did Paul show up and minister to him? I don't know. Sure looks like this guy got saved. And I just want to remind you, you may have a loved one right now that's going through a whole lot of trouble. And it is our fleshly response to always help people to get out of trouble. And that is the love of Jesus. It is. But sometimes I've come to the conclusion the Lord allows difficult times for people to really get their attention. This guy, Sosynthius, may have physically suffered for a while. But for eternity, he is right with God. And he is now the will of God, our brother. I think that's a pretty neat thing. What can we learn here from these first just... Uh, 17 verses of Acts 18. Please remember Priscilla and Aquila. What an example they are of marriage. The example of oneness, always together, always ministering, willing to be uncomfortable, and willing to go where God leads them. If you're here today and you're married, make that part of your prayer for your marriage. It may seem so completely out there that it's not even possible. God is able to bring beauty to ashes. Just remember that. Next, please remember if you're here today and you're single, these things also apply to you. Always ministering, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to go where God leads them. And I just want to clarify when I say willing to be uncomfortable. I think it's only uncomfortable for a moment. Once you die to that area of your life, it's no longer uncomfortable. You just stop and say, okay, that's what the Lord wants. It's a battle. I die to it. Now I have peace. The problem is we just keep thinking about it. I wish I could have. I wish I would. I wish I had. No, nope, I'm dead to that. I'm dead. So it's uncomfortable for a moment, and then you see the glory of God, and you realize, I'm doing this for eternity. Please remember Paul's pattern. Shows up reasons, dialogues with them, but speaks truth. So when you run into those people that are of a different uh, persuasion than we are when it comes to Christianity, I want to talk to you. I want to I hear what you have to say, but I'm going to present the truth of Christianity, and I'm not going to back down from this. And I'm going to present this truth in love, because that is what the truth is. And just remember, do not let fear dictate any of your choices this week in any way whatsoever. Do not. When God shows up to Paul and says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, trust that the Lord is going to lead you and guide you and do not do anything out of a spirit of fear. Worship team, if you can come forward here for the final song. Quick reminder, hard to believe we're two weeks away from Resurrection Sunday. Just a reminder that Wednesday before, I believe it's the 28th, we'll be stopping our study in Revelation.